<laughs> I don't know, right? I'm talking about you. <laughs> it's actually mine. They're very bland colored socks. They're indicative of my personality tendencies. Mm. All right. All right, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. I like it. I need that voice. <laughs> that's my that's my birthday twin. I need, give me your voice. Yeah. Nice one, Jibril. Inshallah. All right. The etiquette of completing the Quran. Bismillah. I'm gonna try to like read like this. The etiquette of completing the Quran. As previously mentioned, it is preferable to complete one's recitation of the Quran at the beginning or end of the day. Ideally, one alternates between the two. One complete recitation cycle ends at the beginning of the day, while the next complete recitation cycle ends at the end of the day. The righteous forebears, which is a translation of what? The righteous forebears. What is it in Arabic? Salaf al-Saleh. May Allah be pleased with them. Recommended that the reciter fast on the day of completion. They also said that the supplication that is made when one completes the Qur'an is answered and that Allah's mercy descends at that time. Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu would gather his family together to get them to make the dua together. Everything else is fair again. Bismillah. <laughs> the supplication for completing the Qur'an is emphatically recommended and many reports have been transmitted confirming this. One should be persistent in one's supplication. One should ask for important matters and supplicate much for the well-being of the Muslims, their leadership, and for all others who attend to their affairs. One should supplicate using an all-encompassing supplication, which includes the supplications of... This is a lot of supplications in one paragraph. Such a long word. This includes the dua of the Prophet ﷺ. I compiled several short supplications in a tibyan. When one completes one's recitation of the Qur'an, it is recommended that one begin the next cycle immediately after it, the righteous among the early generations recommended this due to a hadith mentioning it, and Allah knows best. So what is it saying, basically? When you finish reciting the whole Qur'an, uh, it's good to come together to make dua together. It's good to do it in the beginning of the day or the end of the day. And that when one finishes reciting, they should start a new recitation. So usually in tarawih, what do you usually see, right? They get to Surah An-Nas, then they immediately go to Surah Al-Baqarah. They recite the first verses of Surah Al-Baqarah. The idea being, like, just because I finished doesn't mean I'm stopping. I finished and now I'm starting again. Actually, one of our teachers, when he would read books, he would never, he would always read, uh, or he always reads, like, the next section in the book and then stops. And says, we'll do the commentary next time. Kind of similar idea, right? Like, you keep it so, so the ball keeps rolling, so to speak. <clears throat> uh, what else here? Tamam, that's good enough. Uh, I should mention that tomorrow is the day of Ashura. It's meritorious to fast on the day of Ashura. It's good to fast on the day before it as well, or the day after it as well, but you don't have to. If you only fast on Monday, that's fine too. And uh, the Prophet where I send them highly encourage that. Mm, and that's that, inshallah. So it's good. If you can fast tomorrow, fast tomorrow, inshallah. May Allah accept. The etiquette of all people with the Quran. The etiquette of all people with the Quran. <clears throat> Number one. Tamim al-Dari radiallahu anh stated, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, religion is sincerity. We said to whom? He said to Allah, his book, his messenger, the leaders of the Muslims and their common folk. The religion of sincerity here, what is sincerity in the Arabic? So it's a famous hadith, it's in the 40 hadith. We covered it in the 40 hadith. Anyone? Any takers? The religion of sincerity to who? To Allah, to his book, to the messengers. What's the word in Arabic for sincerity? It's a trick question. Anyone else? Huh? <laughs> this is the hadith of Adin is Nasiha. It's to give good, sincere advice. You'll see that hadith translated in different ways because the word is hard to translate. 
Do you translate it as sincerity? Do you translate it as advice? If you translate it as advice, then it says to whom? You say to Allah and to his book. Okay, like I'm giving advice to Allah and his book. So that's why you have problems on how to translate it. But one of the the original meaning of the word is like to, to thread a needle. So if you thread the needle, if you thread the needle, there's some sincerity in that. And there's some accuracy in that. And there's some goodwill in that. You don't like slam the needle. There's a lot of lessons to learn from it. <clears throat> but in any case, what's mentioned here from the things that you have nasiha or sincerity with is to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's why it's being mentioned here. The scholar said that having sincerity regarding the book of Allah is believing that it is his speech and his revelation, that it does not resemble anything like the words of people and that people are incapable of producing anything like it. Sincerity is extolling its glory while reciting it and giving its recitation its just due by beautifying it, being humble while doing so, and by correctly pronouncing its letters. So how do you have this nasiha to the book of Allah? Basically, have good adab with the book of Allah. Treat the book of Allah with good manners and good etiquette and so on. And, you know, respect it, try to learn from it, hold it in, 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 in position of, of merit, so on and so forth. It is paying attention to its exhortations, pondering its wonders, acting according to what has unequivocal meaning, submitting to what is open to interpretation, meaning that there's things in the Quran that are going to be very clear. You act upon them. There's going to be things in the Quran you don't really understand. You submit to them. So I don't really understand this right now. Maybe I need some more research. Maybe I need to reflect upon it longer. Maybe I just don't get it. But I still submit to it. It's from Allah. I believe in it. And hopefully it will become clear over time. Right, because some things in life are like that, aren't they? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, there's things we understand later that we didn't understand when we were younger, and when we're young, it's hard to realize that because we haven't experienced it yet. But as you get older, you realize it like, oh, I used to think this, I used to think that, I used to have this position. So you realize that, oh, I don't understand everything, and so there might be things in the book of Allah I don't understand it, but I just say, Amen to Billah, I believe in Allah. And I know why I believe in this book as a whole. And so I'm, I'm okay with it. You keep, keep it moving. What Muslims must believe concerning the Quran? <clears throat> Basically, we have to believe that the Quran is perfect. Every single letter is perfect. Every single letter is accurate. You, we don't read the Quran and be like, oh, this verse, I don't know, maybe it's not from the Quran. <laughs> that doesn't work. Like everything in the Quran is from the Quran. Again, if you have a question on understanding, it's a different issue. But we have to affirm that it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's all Quran. Because the way that it reached us didn't reach it. It didn't reach us in a way that allows us to question it. Okay. Not everything we can question. We, we, I know we live in America. And the standard thing in America is question everything. You'd be like, uh, I'm sitting here under a tent. They'd be like, I'm not sure. Maybe you're not sitting under a tent. Maybe it's just, I don't know, like a white thing that it's not a tent. Like, well, there's a pole next to me. No, it's not a pole. That's a stick. You'd be like, everything gets questioned, right? Some things you don't question them. Like if, if someone comes to me and they tell me, your dad is older than you. I'm not going to be like, I don't know, maybe my dad's not older than me. Right? Like, Obviously, my dad is older than me. That's part of the definition. My dad has to be older than me, right? The Quran has come to us in a way that makes it so that we cannot question it. Even some Orientalists affirm this. I remember when we were doing like our Western academic program, there was one of them. I forget who it was. It might have been Colson, who's like, the way the Quran came to us, he's not a Muslim. He's like, we can say without a doubt that the Quran that we have today is the Quran that Uthman radiallahu an distributed to the muslims it's like subhanallah like how much more like what do you want subhanallah like you can really you don't even believe in it and you affirm that right that, like that's an amazing thing so we affirm that everything in this in this book that i don't have with me right now is directly from what the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam taught the companions we have to believe that if you don't believe that that's not okay i should I won't say it's okay, but you should look into it. That's you should do that. Like you know, if I'm if I have to believe in it, I have to follow it. If I'm going to be a Muslim, I should know why I believe in it. It's a good thing to do. 
you know, so you can look it up in a very simple way. You can look it up in a very complicated way. Um, and Azami's book is quite good, you know. Um, what is it called? Does anyone know? The Quranic text or something like that? Sheikh Fuad maybe knows. And you know which one I'm talking about, anyone? The orange cover? Azami's book. That one? You know it? Uh, he knows it. Yeah. I forget what it's called, but it's like the final Quranic text or something like that. It has an orange cover. It's very well done. And also now Yaqeen Institute has been doing a lot of articles on this topic. Sheikh Yusuf Wahabi is very good, mashallah. We can all benefit from that, mashallah. But, you know, do the research. Believe it. And when you believe it, then you have to believe it. And be like, okay, I'm good. I'm going to trust this thing. It's a work in progress. Alhamdulillah. Number two, we have to believe. Like that we don't belittle anything from the Qur'an. We believe it's from Allah. We don't belittle anything from it. We don't throw it on the ground. We don't do different things. You know, we don't throw it in the trash, stuff like that. There's some sanctity to the text. Interpreting the Qur'an. It is unlawful for someone to interpret the Qur'an without knowledge or without the qualifications to speak about its meanings. This one, sometimes modern Muslims, we don't like this. Everyone wants to be able to have an opinion on everything. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said, what, what sky will be over me and what earth will be under me if I said anything about a single verse in the book of Allah without knowledge? Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Like he's saying, this is a big deal. If you're going to say something about this is what the verse means, you better know what the verse means. And we have a method for doing that. Again, like, alhamdulillah in Islam, we have guidance and we have knowledge and we have methods and then they can be applied. Right? Like sometimes there's room for interpretation. Alhamdulillah, fine. But it's not just everything is whatever I feel like. You know, I sat in a khutbah one time. The person started talking about Allah, forgive him and us. I'm not trying to blame this person. <coughs> he said, Allah says in the Quran. What is it in English? Uh, by the fig and the olive. And he's like, and what is Allah talking about here with the fig? Is the figment of your imagination. And I was just like, La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Like, you cannot do a, a language analysis on the English translation of the Quran. Like, it doesn't work. It's not the fig in the first place, it's the teen. Like, it's not the Quran. Like, subhanAllah. But we have rules for this stuff. Like, there's Arabic language, Arabic language has meanings. If we want to understand what a verse means, we don't just make it up. Like we Actually, the first place we look is what do the Sahaba say about this verse? Ibn Abbas, what did he say? Ibn Mas'ud, what did he say? You know, All these people, Zaid, what did he say? What did the students of the Sahaba say? Now, they might say different things. They might have like five different opinions. Sometimes, many times you do. You have a, verse, a, a word in the Quran, and there'll be like five opinions. And some people look at it and they're like, well, why are there five opinions? Because try to look at it and understand. They're usually various shades of meaning, the different possibilities that are there in the language, so on and so forth. But it's understood by the language. And sometimes, yeah, we, we do have questions on verses, like how do I interpret this? How do I understand it? We should look it up. Alhamdulillah, we have uh, tremendous resources in this regard. Maybe not in English, but in Arabic we do. So we can look it up, inshallah. And sometimes we might not understand it. And that's okay. Again, we can just say like, okay, I don't really understand what the meaning of this is. The interpretations that I've been told, they don't really sit well with me, but I believe it's the Quran and, you know, maybe one day I'll understand. <clears throat> Look at this example. You feel like he's speaking in 2020, you know, mashallah. It is unlawful to argue or debate about the Quran without justification, as in the case of a person who realizes that a verse likely runs contrary to his opinion and carries a remote possibility of concurring with it yet insist on applying it to his opinion and persist in debating about it, even though it is apparent to him that it runs contrary to his view. Yeah. So it happens all the time, right? No, that's not what it means. Well, I think it means this, and they just won't give up. I think it means this. You don't have any foundation for it. Like, SubhanAllah, one time I remember some brother, he made some comment on some word in the Quran. And I was like, I don't think that's what that word means, you know? And he's like, uh, I think it does. And I'm like, well, as our Arabic teacher used to always say, Baini wa and qamus. Like, 
You have an opinion on it? Between me and you is the dictionary. Let's look, see what it says. I showed him the definition from the dictionary. It was not the definition that he was saying. And he refused to accept it. And I was like, subhanAllah, I don't know what to do with you. Do I just throw you out for the rest of my life? Like, can I, can I trust anything that you, like at that point, can you trust anything that the person says? Like you explicitly show them, this is like a person, I'm not going to say who it is, but like, damn, people like read their stuff and listen to them and things. So I was like, I'll give them nasihah. SubhanAllah. Allah help us. MashaAllah. Alhamdulillah. Sorry. All right, interpreting the Quran. Saying I was caused to forget instead of I forgot is an interesting point, actually. It is offensive to say I forgot such and such verse. So you say you memorize some Quran and you forgot it. The guidance of the Sunnah is not to say I forgot it. It's very interesting, actually. But one should say I was caused to forget it. I was caused to forget it. So in the hadith, it says, don't say, Nasitu aya kada wa kada. But I can Not I forgot it, but I was made to forget it. For whatever reason, I was made to forget this verse or that verse or whatever. It is permissible to say Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Ali Imran, Surah An-Nisa and the like for all the surahs without there being anything. I'm not really sure what he uh, is trying to get there. Surah. It's hard to tell what he means without the Arabic there. And these are... It is not offensive to say this is the recitation. It gets into the recitations. We'll leave that. Uh, blowing one's breath with the words of the Quran for protective purposes. Mm -hmm. So now we get into the category of things where sometimes people will talk about them and they're just like, as if it's all completely bottled. Okay, it has no foundation in anything. See, Maminoui. Maminoui. Like, it's hard to find someone who's more trusted an Islamic scholarship than Imam Nawawi, like he's a really central figure, right? It is not offensive to blow one's breath while reciting Quran for protective purposes. This blowing is a light breath without saliva, like you're not spitting. You're just like when you you know the hadith about at the night you read the three quls at the end of the night and you blow into your hands and then you wipe them over your body. The Prophet ﷺ was so adamant about doing that that even in the sickness of his death. He would, he would ask Sayyidina Aisha to do it. So he was so sick that he couldn't do it himself. He would ask her to do it on him. So she would do it on him. It's good to do it on your kids and stuff. A group of the Salaf disliked it, including the companion Abu Juhayfa and Hassan al-Basri and Ibrahim al-Nakhai. May Allah be pleased with them. And the preferred opinion is the first, since it was established in Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim that the Messenger of Allah did it. So this is also something that's important. There's a lot of things that there's debate on in our religion. One of the really not useful things that we do sometimes is we want to take matters where there's difference of opinion and debate and just pretend like there's not. So like, no, this is the opinion on the issue. This is the opinion on the issue. Like, no, there's opinions. No way is telling you. It's okay to do it. But some, and then he tells you some of the early scholars, they didn't like it, but other ones were okay with it. And he's, a, he's saying, my opinion is it's okay to do. Because it's clear in the hadith. Okay, that's it. It moves on. It's not like we're going to belabor it all day long. No, but so-and-so said this and so-and-so said It doesn't matter, actually. 500 people could say it. And 100 people said the other one. And bismillah. Like, just move on with life. There's a lot of opportunities to do all kinds of things. As long as you have some sort of foundation that's reliable in the religion for doing it, you do it. We don't have to argue over it. The Quran is decoration. This is interesting. It takes probably a more uh, strict stance on this one than you might expect. It is offensive to decorate walls and clothing with the Quran and to write it on the walls of the mosque in the direction of the Qibla. Offensive is probably a translation of makroom. They're saying it's disliked. If one were to write the Quran on something edible like pastry, there would be no harm in eating it. <laughs> Interesting question. <laughs> Someone puts a little verse on the cake. Do you eat it? <laughs> Bismillah. If one were to write Qur'an on wood, it would be offensive to burn it. Interesting. There is a difference of opinion about writing the Qur'an in a vessel, washing it, and then giving the water to someone sick to drink. So you write the Qur'an in the vessel, wash the vessel, there's water that comes from it, and you give them that water to drink it. So there's a difference of opinion about it. 
And Hassan al-Basri Mujahid Abu Qilaba and Awza'i said there is no harm in it, but in Nakha'i disliked it. All these people are like huge figures from mostly the Tabi'in. Tabi'in, like the generation of the students of the Sahaba or people afterwards. As for writing the letters of the Quran on an iron pipe, reed, or skin along with something else, uh, it is not <clears throat> it is not unlawful, though there is a disagreement whether it is offensive. So a lot of this, what is it going back to, is basically respecting the text. So if you put the text in some sort of way that causes it to not be so respected, it's not good to do, essentially. <clears throat> the Quran... There's a whole, there's an issue, there's a question here on the Qur'an with non-Muslims. Um, of course, when we refer to the Qur'an, we're not talking about English translations, right? We're talking about Arabic. But the idea here is that one should be just a little bit thoughtful as to how they deal with this. So if you want to distribute Qur'an to people, don't give them copies of the Qur'an that have Arabic and English. So if you're like standing in the market, and just giving copies of the Quran in Arabic and English to anyone who passes by, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to take it and throw it. They throw it in the trash. They're going to throw it on the ground. They're going to get in their car. They're going to throw it on the floor. It's going to be under their feet in the car for like the next six months. But don't do that. But if you give just like now, alhamdulillah, we have good translations. They don't have any Arabic in them. You want to give something to someone? Just give them a translation. It doesn't have any Arabic in it. So now you don't have to worry about it. Alhamdulillah, it's fine, right? And of course, if someone's like really serious and they want to really understand Islam, maybe they're studying Arabic, stuff like that, and you feel like they're not going to disrespect the text and so on, give them the text, it's okay. But uh, just be thoughtful a little bit about it. Okay. Recommended times. Recommended times and circumstances for recitation. Basically, there's a lot to be said, and we can't cover all of it. That's what he says. Uh, one should be especially observant in reciting Surah Yasin, 36, Surah Al-Waqi'ah, 56, Surah Al-Mulk, 67, Surah Al-Ikhlas, Surah Al-Faraq, Surah Al-Nas, and Ayat Al-Kursi. It is recommended to recite Surah Al-Kahf on Friday, and it's also good to recommend uh, to read Surah Ali Imran and Surah Hud on Friday. He said some, some recommended that. Uh, certain prayers, like in the morning prayer, it's it's good to do Surah Al-Fatiha, then Kafirun, Surah Al-Fatiha, then Iflas in the second. During the Friday prayer, it's good to read Surah Al-Jum'ah in the first rakah and Surah Al-Munafiqun in the second rakah. The Prophet وسلم, would do these things. That's where it comes from. Uh, during the Eid prayer, it's good to read Surah Qaf and Surah Al-Qamr. Usually you're probably used to the other one, right? Surah Al-A'la and Surah Al-Ghashiyah. So many of these things, they're there in the hadith of the Prophet them that he would do that. So that's why it's good to do it. But one should also be consider their environment. For example, like when we were in Egypt, one of the things I noticed was that generally speaking, Salat took longer. Generally speaking. <laughs> the Imams would just take longer. They'd read longer surahs. They'd stay in sujood longer. They, it was just took longer and people were okay with it but if you were to come and do that in like southern california it might cause problems right? people are like running all over the place they're working 70 hours a week and they're commuting another 15 and like you know it's people are in a rush a little bit is it good to have times when we can take some time yeah but be conscious of it and the hanafi school is actually very strict on this uh, like for example they say that the imam shouldn't make anything more than seven tasbihat in the, you know, like when you go in Rukur, subhanahu rabbil adim, they shouldn't say more than seven. Otherwise, it's too long. If they're in sujood, subhanahu rabbil ala, no more than seven. Otherwise, it's too long. If you're the imam, because people are stuck behind you, right? <laughs> it's like, anytime someone's stuck behind you, you have to think extra about it. So sometimes I go crazy here on Sunday because you're not stuck here. Tell you all the time, get up, leave, come, do whatever you want. Alhamdulillah, it's fine. But if you're in Juma, for example, you should finish on time. If you're in Juma, for example, it's not it's not good for the khatib to deal with like really contentious things. Because people are stuck there. Like you're forcing, they, they don't have a choice to leave. So if you're forcing them to like 
you, you pick some issue that's like really people really arguing over it to clarify something is different but to like you know sometimes you know you're doing you know you're taking a position that's gonna upset some people right uh, it's not good to do like in a place where they're stuck see alhamdulillah they just got up they went they're fine <laughs> the, the, the perfect example frequently reciting ayatun kursi and the mu'awwidatayn so he says it's very good to recite ayatun kursi and the mu'awwidatayn before you go to sleep in, in the night in the prayers after your prayers so on and so forth just very good to recite these a lot uh, when going to sleep, it's also good to read Surah Al-Mulk, as we know, but also the last two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah. The Prophet وسلم, he said, the person who goes to sleep at night and they recite the last two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah, they take care of all of his or her needs. They suffice the person. So these are good habits to have, alhamdulillah. Uh, if you wake up in the middle of your sleep, you could recite certain verses in Surah Ali Imran. The Prophet woke up in his sleep and in the middle of the night recited these verses. These are all things that we know from different places. When in the presence of someone who is ill, one should recite Surah Al-Fatiha, Surah Al-Ikhlas, Surah Al-Faraq, and Surah Al-Nas while blowing into one's hands and wiping them over the ill person's body. Of course, don't do this without their consent and their knowledge. <laughs> don't like go into the sick person and be like, you start doing this stuff and then like wiping them and things. Like make sure there's some sort of understanding. But he mentions that. One of the, there's something you can kind of recognize. He's mentioning over and over again, Surah Al-Fatiha, Ayat Al-Kursi. Like basically, they're like catch-alls. You know? Surah Al-Fatiha is a catch-all. You can recite it for basically anything. You recite it for being sick. You recite it for tawfiq. You recite it, you recite it for starting a new thing. You recite it because you need help. You recite it to alleviate someone else's needs. You can use Surah Al-Fatiha for everything. So that's kind of like a, I wouldn't call it a hack, but like if it's hard to remember what to use in different times, it's said about Ibn Taymiyyah that after Fajr, he would go and sit and he would just repeat Surah Al-Fatiha over and over again. That was like his morning uh, with, so to speak. It's also established from the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that reads Surah Yasin in the presence of someone who's on the brink of death. Uh, there's a big debate on this. And the hadith says, read Surah Yasin for your dead. Does it mean for someone who's passed away or someone who's in the moments of death? Hmm. Huh? Both. There's a difference of opinion. There's a lot of debate on it. So he mentions it as being something that you recite for someone who's on the brink of death. That they're in their ending sickness, he reads Surah Yasin. The Shabi reported that the Ansar would read Surah Al-Baqarah to someone on the brink of death. He mentions this. So, so actually, that's a really interesting narration. Why? You see why this is interesting? Huh? Yeah, you're with them longer. Yeah, but what's interesting to me about this is that they don't have a particular narration for that. Right? Like they know there's merit to Surah Al-Baqarah. There's different hadith about Surah Al-Baqarah comes for the person in the hereafter. The Prophet them would give precedence to the people of Baqarah. For example, in one of the battles, I forget which one it was. Uh, I just covered it. Hunayn, I think it was Hunayn. When the battle of Hunayn got like really serious, and the Prophet them told them, call the people of Baqarah. Like things are serious, call the people of Baqarah. So they, they said they called to the people of Baqarah. So like, who are the people who memorize Surah Al-Baqarah? He's, those are the ones he wants next to him in the battle. So Baqarah has like, it has a very interesting merit. Um, so they would recite to the person who's on the brink of death. Why I'm saying this is because like, sometimes there's not a particular text to say, do this. But you can still like, as long as you're not saying, the prophet told me to do this, you can say like, I feel like Baqarah is a good thing to read. And I'm going to read Baqarah to the person when they're ill. You know, like it's good. You know, it's not everything has to have like, if you're trying to figure out how many raka'ah Dhuhr has, obviously you need to know how many raka'ah it has. It has four, right? But if something's from the religion, it's from the religion. Reading Quran is from the religion. Intending healing from the Quran is from the religion. Allah says in the Quran that the Quran is shifa. So you want to read Quran to someone when they're ill? Read Quran to someone when they're ill. You don't need like a particular text for it. 
we this this issue and like our understanding of this issue caused too much problems and made people have like a psychological issue with their religion actually and now it's like everything i'm not sure if i should do that or not so in the end you don't do anything you know yes you can play it inshallah it's not the same but you can play it it's good it's a good thing to do inshallah yeah, I don't know if it'll be the same, but you can do that. You know, it's a good thing to do. Because, you know, like when we recite it, we're actually physically like reciting it and we're bringing it into the world around us in a different way than just a recording that's essentially mirroring the sound that's already recorded, right? It's not exactly the same. When we recite something from, from our heart and we pronounce it with our tongues, it's different. So... It's, it's good to do these things, but we don't always do them, you know, like for our kids when they sleep and stuff. Usually we just play Surah Al-Baqarah. Right? It's good. So those are all good things. You know, is it exactly the same and so on? Maybe not, but it's still a good thing. It's still better than not doing it, right? And inshallah, you know, Allah help us. I was saying is like, you know, we, we, it's difficult to read Surah Al-Baqarah to our kids every night when they sleep. So we just put it on, you know, maybe like once a month or something you read it, but put it on. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. But there's a specific hadith that mentions that Surah Al-Baqarah, when it's read in a house, it protects the house from shaitan for, for a week. There's a specific narration of this. So that's why there's an emphasis on the idea of reciting Surah Al-Baqarah in a home and stuff like that. That's why I like Egyptian Quran radio. Egyptian Quran radio, they make khatam of the Quran every seven days. So if you just play it in your house every seven days, along with all the other programming and everything, you get a khatam every seven days. All right, last chapter. Last chapter, alhamdulillah. Writing the Quran and respecting its written form. He says the chapter is vast and I mentioned most of it in the Tibyan and I'll summarize some here. Alhamdulillah, pray for Tawfiq. We had our first Majlis San Diego, like actual Sunday gathering today. And it was very nice, Alhamdulillah. Pray for Tawfiq that it can be beneficial for people and stuff. Allah gives us a khlas. Muslims have consensus that it is obligatory to protect and respect the written text of the Quran. If a Muslim places a mushaf in a garbage receptacle, he becomes a disbeliever. It was like serious, you know? Why? Because you disrespected the word of God. It's a funny, uh, it's not really funny, it's actually embarrassing, but when I first became Muslim, I didn't know about these things, right? I give respect to the brothers. There's a little masjid musalla I used to go to next to my parents' house, and I would take my copy of the Quran, and I would like read it and stuff. Before Fajr, we'd go and like arrive and read a little bit before Fajr, and then time for Iqamah would come, and I would just put it on the ground. So I don't know any better, you know? Like, you know, what do you do with a book when you're not reading it? You just put it down. So, like, read the Quran. I just put it down. And every morning, we would finish Salat. Look how, like, stupid I was. Sometimes he's just like, hello, getting it? So every morning, we'd finish Salat. And, we'd, you know, finish Salat, make dhikr. I'd turn around. I'd turn around to go back to where the, the place that I put the Quran. And I would find that it's placed up. Every day, it's like put on a chair, it's put on a shelf, something. Every day, this is happening. Didn't get through my head. <laughs> I'm like getting, I'm like, I'm like so American about it. I'm like getting angry, you know? I'm like, why are these people moving my book? Like every day, they're moving. Like, why are they touching my book and moving my stuff? But they never said it. Like every day, they probably, they could tell probably that I'm like very fresh, you know? 
So they're probably like, you know, just put it, didn't say anything. Ask me if I want to make 40 days and four days and stuff like that. They're a tablighi, Allah bless them. I couldn't understand that either. Like, brother, you should make intention for da'wah. I'm like, I'm part of the MSA. What do you mean? And I really couldn't understand what they were saying. They're like, no, 40 days. I'm like, 40 days what? Like, I'm in MSA. I go to college. What am I going to do for it? Couldn't understand. <laughs> so funny. Things you can't get. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can ask me later. Some of the sisters are like, what are you talking about? Because you don't know. So only the brothers do it, right, in the in the tablih. Anyways. If someone is presented with a mushaf, it is recommended that he stand up. Interesting, right? It is unlawful to use the written text of the Qur'an as a headrest. Indeed, it is unlawful to use any book of knowledge as a headrest. Interesting, huh? Any book of knowledge as a headrest. Why? Well, it was disrespectful. Just like put it on your head. I think I told you the story before one of my classmates who when he was going to school, like as a kid, and he would ride with his dad, and he took his backpack and put it on the floor of the car at his feet, right? And his dad was like, pick it up. And he's like, why? You know, like, I don't have Quran in here. It's just like my math book, my science book, stuff like that. And he's like, it's knowledge. It's all knowledge. You don't put it on the ground by your feet. Pick it up, put it on your lap. That's proper. This is actually, you know, people sometimes they look at these things and they think they don't. Like, this is actually civilization. And like you, It's really, uh, like, these things matter, you know? And they're very beautiful. And that's how you have a beautiful culture and beautiful people. One of the things in, in Colombia that we found is very interesting. They were like talking about how like it's the people are so polite that even if you tell them I'm trying to learn Spanish and like I know that I'm making mistakes, can you correct my mistake? They won't correct your mistake. Because it's just like too impolite to them, they won't correct it. SubhanAllah. It's, like, it's so interesting. But that's like how you have beautiful civilization. That's how you have these relationships and so on and so forth. The scholars agree that it is recommended to write down the Qur'an and the Mus'haf to beautify and make clear its writing and to be precise in its calligraphy without the, writing the letters in an elongated or oblique manner. So just make them clean. It is recommended to include the dots and the vowelized since this guards against errors and alterations. Because the original writing of the Qur'an, does it have any dots? Forget the vowels, like the kasra, fatha, stuff like that. The actual dots, like that distinguish the fa from the qaf or the ta from the tha from the bat, it doesn't have any of that, right? The original writing of the Mus'haf is just a skeleton because it's just a mnemonic device anyways. You're supposed to actually memorize it from someone else, heart to heart. And then you have your little skeleton. It helps you as a mnemonic device. You can look at it, you can figure it out and it'll help you remember. But then over time, very early on, they started to put the dots and then they started to put the vowels so that people won't make mistakes. You said it's good to do that. It is unlawful to journey to hostile lands with the Mus'haf if it is feared that it will fall into enemy possession. Did you know this? It's all over the books. I think there's even a hadith on it that you don't take the Mus'haf to enemy lands if you're worried that it's going to get taken out of respect for the text. It's really amazing, right? Someone insane or a youth who has not reached the age of discernment is forbidden from carrying the Mus'haf out of fear of violating its sanctity. Interesting. Now, imagine you're going to find different opinions on this and stuff, right? But the idea is, again, take the idea. What is the idea? Is that we should try to respect the text as much as we can. So if we're afraid that, like, if we give it to a child, they're just going to, we should tell them. This is how you should deal with it. This is how you interact with it, so on and so forth. Ritual impurity, we already talked about. Touching books that contain Qur'an, we already talked about. If a person does not find water and it is permissible for him to make tayammum, they can make tayammum and touch the musaf. It's all stuff that we already talked about, actually. Can you use sand to make tayammum? Depends on your madhab. In the Hanafi school, you can. In the Hanafi school, you can make tayammum using anything from the earth. The way that you know that is if it doesn't uh, like disintegrate when you burn it. So like rock, sand, stuff like that. 
they maintain their form when you generally, I don't know if you apply like extreme high pressures or something, but this is the general principle. Yes. Sir. The Mus'haf is the, is, sorry, good question, is the written Arabic version of the Quran. So the actual, just like one pure Arabic version of the Quran, that's the Mus'haf. Okay. The word technically means like a collection of sheets. It's basically a book. Um, interesting, he closes with, we Shafi'is do not consider it unlawful to sell or buy the Mus'haf, meaning you can. Some of the Salaf considered it offensive, the righteous forebears considered both offensive, while others considered selling but not buying it offensive. So again, it comes down to this issue of like, okay, we have so much respect for this text. Can you even buy it and sell it? Or should it just be distributed for free? It's an interesting question. Concluding remarks. This concludes what we intended from writing this short work. I ask Allah most generous that it be a lasting, comprehensive, widespread benefit. My sufficiency is Allah and what a great agent is he. Praise us for Allah, Lord of the worlds. May his complete prayers and blessings be upon our master Muhammad and upon his folk and companions until the last day. Allahumma ameen. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, bismillahirrahmanirrahim, we ask you a lot to make this for us and not against us. We ask you a lot to make this for us and not against us. We ask you a lot to make this for us and not against us. We ask you a lot to help us to benefit from the words and the knowledge of Imam Nawawi. We ask you a lot to reward him, to forgive him, to elevate his rank, and to elevate the rank and to forgive those who have come before us from all of the righteous and scholarly people, those who we know and those who we don't know. We ask you a lot to help us to follow your religion, to understand it to understand how it works in every time and every place, to understand why it gives us meaning, to understand how it guides us in our lives. We ask you, Allah, to help us to be sources of good in the world around us, to benefit us with that which you have, the opportunities that you have given us. We ask you, Allah, to protect us and protect our families, to protect our children. We ask you, Allah, to give good health to those who are sick. We ask you, Allah, to give healing to those who are sick. We ask you, Allah, to have mercy on those who have passed away. Allah, we ask that you do not deprive us from the blessing of being able to gather for your remembrance and to gather for understanding your religion. We ask you, Allah, for all good in this life and the next and for the ability to be uh, on the way of the Prophet وسلم, and everything that we do. Allahumma ameen. Alhamdulillah. Any questions, comments anyone has? I have no idea what we're covering next. So, yeah, I'm going to have to think about that. Yes. It's not quite the same. It's not quite the same. It's probably just like turn off the screen. It's okay. If you, the thing is, if we put it on the ground and the screen is still on, it's still kind of like probably not good. It's probably not at the same level. So there's a whole, there's a lot of conversation around, like, does it have the same ruling as written text? And some scholars said that it doesn't because it's like a projection of an image and it's not exactly the same. So it's not the same, but it'd probably be better just to close it, you know, close the screen, turn off the screen. Close the screen is the Arabic translation, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> turn off the screen. <laughs> is that, is that, okay, I'm doing it. Okay, Tony. <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't apply to the English translation in the same way. Because technically speaking, it's not Quran, right? Like technically, technically speaking, on principle, any translation is not Quran. It's a translation of the meanings of the Quran. So all of the like really strict rules on like you should have wudu, should treat it this way, so on and so forth, they don't apply the same way for a translation. But all of that being said, we should still, you know, still a book of knowledge. It's still, we should still try to have respect with it. Yeah, it's an interesting question. The question is, when we forget something from the, or uh, now I'm stuck, right? Let me just try to explain the question. Like if we say we forgot something from the Quran, Part of that is oftentimes like we're taking responsibility and we're kind of blaming ourselves. 
right? But if we're not supposed to say that and we're supposed to say, I was caused to forget, then like, what's, what's the, it's kind of like the wisdom in that. Um, I don't know. I've often wondered that and I don't recall reading a commentary on it. Um, yeah, like maybe you could say it's from Shaitan. The thing is, is that theoretically speaking, you could take it two ways, right? When you say I was caused to forget, you could take it as like, I was caused to forget by Shaitan, which is lighter. Or you could take it as I was caused to forget by Allah, which is heavier, you know? So like, like linguistically, theoretically, it could kind of go either way. So I'm not sure, but I, I do recall like one Hanafi text, one time someone shared that they said, when it said that you forgot it, it's not that you forgot the memorization of it. It's that you forgot entirely how to even read it. So like if you were to look at it, you wouldn't know how to read it. Whereas before you knew how to read it. That, that's forgotten. That's when you say I was which is really serious actually. The reason why that's important because there's other hadith that we came across that are really severe. That say like, I saw all the sins of my ummah and from the worst sins of my ummah was that someone memorized some Quran and then they forgot it. You know, like there's some really serious hadith on this issue. So then it comes, there's some questions here on what, what things mean. Exactly. Well, when you say I was caused, you put these into context. Then you kind of acknowledge the, the, the severity of why you forgot and putting yourself in a position that the laws make you forget. Yeah, it's like you're even, it's even more than saying I forgot. So I was made to forget, which is like even I really need to. I really need to double down on this, right? Yeah, I need to. I need to. I need to really take this seriously. Allah forgive us. And this is also one of the things to keep in mind. Like, if you're really pushing someone to memorize, is that you don't want them to forget, right? So. It's like someone said, I think one time when we were talking about parents and children and stuff, and they're like, if I know as a parent that disobeying a parent is a serious thing to a child, I'm going to be really careful of the kind of things I tell my child to do. I was like, that's a really profound reflection, right? But it's kind of similar with memorization. Like if you know that not remembering something you memorized is kind of a serious thing, I'm going to be careful how much I push people to memorize. I want to make sure that they have some independent motivation and stuff. <laughs> this is my poncho shawl. It's actually a poncho. We made a shawl. Yes, someone. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was interesting, too, because usually if we're trying to get rid of it, we burn it, right? So what's the story behind that? I'm not really sure. There might be some context to it or something. But the general rule is you burn or you bury. Yeah, you burn or you bury is general rule. Yeah. In, uh, in West Africa, the thing was they would they make the ink out of like plants, right? It's organic before you get upset. And they write down whatever they're memorizing. And after they memorize it, they wash it off. And then they take the water they washed off and they drink it. Okay. Yeah, really interesting, huh? But it's pure organic ink, all right? It's not like toxic ink you buy in the store. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's nice. Yeah, it's a nice thing to do. Yeah, she's saying the one one teacher she showed the uh, board that she memorized with, and then when she washes it, she uses that water to feed her plants. It's nice. Plants are happy, I'm sure. It's good to make your plants happy. Yes, I.
Um, good question. So the question is around when we recite Quran for people who have passed away, like what is the situation with what are we intending and is it, do they get good deeds so we connect to them? These kind of different things. Okay. Uh, so first and foremost, the position of the later four medhebs is that it's permissible to recite Quran for someone who's passed away. So contrary to, if you've heard anyone getting really passionate about otherwise, position of the four medhebs is that it's permissible to do that. So what you would do in that case is they've passed away, you read Quran, and when you're reading, you intend that they're getting reward for it. If you want to be like extra careful, after you finish, you could just make a quick dua. Say, oh Allah, the reward of whatever I read, please give it to them as a gift. And that's what your intention is. Um, is there a kind of connecting to someone who's passed away that happens by you giving them a gift? Yeah. So we do that a lot, you know, like some of our teachers, they would say that if we want to give a gift to someone who's passed away, then you recite Surah Al-Fatiha three times and Surah Al-Ikhlas five times and you intend it for them. So, you know, sometimes you read about someone, you really love them, you admire them, something like that. It doesn't have to be that particular formulation. You can use whatever you want. But it's good to, like, you read about someone and you're inspired by them, give them something. <laughs> like, they gave you something, you should give them something out of adab. Read Fatiha for them, make some dua for them, do whatever you need to do. Just give some charity in their name, whatever else it might be. And there's a connection in that. It's also a position of many of the scholars that the dead can hear the living if you go to their graves and stuff. Contrary to one of the translations of Ibn Kathir, look at this, by the way, like these things are problems. Okay. Ibn Kathir in his actual tafsir, on the verse, there's a verse about can the dead hear the living, right? In his actual tafsir, he does the tafsir, he mentions the different opinions. And then in the end, he says, and the stronger opinion that I believe is that people can hear you. Okay. Whoever it was, someone sent me the picture. And they sent me the actual Arabic side by side. They're like, look at these people who translated it. They translated it and stopped after he mentioned the opinion that it's not allowed and cut out the rest. So it makes it seem when you read it that his opinion is that you can't do it, right? This is shadiness. Like people need to have some tough work. Now you're translating someone's work, have some tough work. Translate their actual work, show their intent. Don't just like take, take things out of it because that's your opinion. You write your own book if that's your opinion. Don't put it on someone else's uh, tongue. Uh, so the majority of opinions, you can, you can, they can hear you. So you go, you say salam alaikum, you can talk to them. You know, inshallah they hear you. Yeah, yes, you. I think it's better to refrain. You know, no, no. refrain. I mean. I say this as someone who has obviously non-Muslim family who have died, right? So um, I, I believe, and I believe that this is the clearer position that's in the text, is that it's better to refrain. There's some things you might find here and there that like, there's some angles you could take on it. I can't remember exactly right now what it was. I talked to one of the shuyukh that we've had here before about it. Like this idea of there's general mercy, rahmah and there's specific rahmah. And like there's there's different angles you can take. Yeah, yeah that's that's one of the arguments. But I just feel like 
Like, I don't need to be Allah. <laughs> you know, someone died. I don't know what they died on. I know that generally speaking, we make dua for people who died on Islam. And at this point, if they died and they weren't on Islam, Allahu Alam, I don't know what their state is, but I don't know what their state is. So I just leave it. And you could say, you, could, you know, if someone is really hurting or something and they want to say, like, I don't know, Allah, you know better their situation and we know that you're merciful and we ask you to deal with them in a way that's according to what they, you know, there's different things that you could say that kind of refrain from passing judgment. But, you know, it's hard. These are hard things. But if someone says, Allah, have mercy on them, rest in peace, stuff like this, there's angles that you could take it in. But, uh, you know. Making, like, I'm suggesting refraining from asking forgiveness for people who died on other than Islam. Even if you don't know, like, maybe you don't. I'm very confident that my aunt didn't know anything about Islam. But, you know, she's gone to what she's gone to, and Allah is God. And I never started this reporting, and alhamdulillah. You could see you, Allah, yeah. Allah, you're just and you're merciful and I leave it to you, Allah. Yeah, it's fine. Sometimes we feel like some pain, we need to talk to Allah, but we can talk to Allah and maybe in a way that's not telling him what to do. It's okay. Yes, Tony. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is the when does love become borderline worshiping? So we're taught to love the Prophet them, but when does love become worship? And the simple answer to it is if it becomes worship. <laughs> so if you if if what is the definition of God, right? Definition of God is God does whatever He wants without any need or permission from anyone else. So as long as I don't believe that about the Prophet them, then my love is not worship. But if I start to believe that the Prophet has some sort of like independent agency, not connected to God to help me in some sort of way, then this is a problem. But we do believe that the Prophet has agency given by God to help people, especially in the hereafter. Like one of the things of the Day of Judgment is that the Prophet them can intercede for people. He can he can come and he can say, Allah forgive this person. You know, so and so they did this and this and this. Allah please forgive them. And he, that's part of his right. So I'm not believing that he has that power in and of himself. I believe that he has that power because Allah gave it to him. As long as that's the case, then we're clear. Allah is Allah and the Prophet is a human being. And he's, the, he's the greatest of human beings. But he's a human being. And he doesn't have like independent agency in that way. that's interesting yeah so that's why yeah that's interesting said that he said that he knows someone who so like the prophet was spoken disrespectfully to him and he got really upset but the same thing was done to allah and he didn't respond in the same way so he's just saying like it seems like there's a level of imbalance there yeah this probably priorities are a little bit out of out of place but sometimes Sometimes the love for the Prophet is a little bit more tangible for people, right? Because the idea of loving Allah, anything related to Allah, there's a level of abstraction to it. Like it's, it's abstract. Like they say, that whatever came to your mind about Allah, it's not Allah. Allah is abstract in that way, right? So... But when people learn about the Prophet them, it's very tangible. So sometimes, is that right? Probably not. I mean, like Allah is obviously in higher 
position. I don't know if we can use that language, but you know, his position is he's Allah, and the Prophet is not Allah. So Allah is so there should be some distinction in that. But it's interesting, yeah. But I think sometimes there's just it's more tangible. So I sometimes they say that the Quran is the miracle for the Arabs and the Prophet is the miracle for the non-Arabs. Because they can really understand the Prophet. They can't connect to the Quran in the same way that an Arab can connect to the Quran. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. Reading the whole thing. Making tattoo. Reading the whole thing. Yes. Again, you know, it's like, so the argument is, the argument is, the Prophet and his companions, they didn't do that. And that's true. They didn't do that. But that doesn't mean you can't do it. So all of this is going back to like, how do we understand the question of bid'ah, blameworthy innovation, and so on and so forth. But the four madhabs opinion is, it's a good thing to do. So can you do it? You can do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. It's okay. Come to that. You can make dua. You can do other things. All right. My team plays at eight. Any other questions? Yeah. <laughs> First time I'm going to get to play this week. Alhamdulillah. Yes. Let's go, Mona, and then we'll come to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes we gather and like each person will read a different part, right? And does that still count as a khatam, a completion? It does. Yeah. That's why even like in communities, you know, when you go in a masjid and they have that thing where it's like adhan called and you slide it and it says adhan not called, you know, it'd be cool to have like some sort of sophisticated way to know like, because people come in the masjid and read Quran all the time, right? It'd be really cool to like, the masjid as a community should be making khatam like all the time. Every couple of days should be khatam. You make dua. Some of the imams do that, like Sheikh Ibrahim in the Fountain Valley. In Salat, he reads khatam. So between Fajr, Maghrib, Isha. And then every so often, he'll do a complete khatam and they'll make dua and he'll invite everyone and stuff. So he just reads his hifz ala tour all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So you could do that. It's cool. Quran club. I think. I think the brother who started that was in Egypt when we were there. I think if it's the same one, but I know there's a couple that came out recently. Yeah, it's cool. These are good things. It's good use of technology. You had. A... Yeah. So we had mentioned how the prophet acted in I'm trying to wrap my head around that factor. You know, Allah is already the most just. So how does he come in and play that part in terms of like, Allah says, let's say, for example, they sit and get 20 years, right? And then the Prophet comes and says, no, I only two years. I would expect Is he overstepping that bound? How, how do we wrap that up? That Allah's mercy is greater than his just justice. It's just pure mercy. So what I'm saying so, is like, like this, you have the Prophet Solomon like acting as an intercessor. So is he coming from that perspective where he doesn't necessarily agree with that judgment that Allah already gave? So where in what part of that process is he coming from? Right. Uh, I'm not sure, but I wouldn't phrase it as he doesn't agree. I would look at it more like He's requesting a pardon, essentially, you know, commission the sentence or, you know, just he's just asking for mercy. 
and you're just Allah, you could do whatever you want, but you've given me this, you know, and I love for my ummah, and this is, you know, it's just a matter of love and mercy. And, and Allah said that when he created everything, that my mercy is greater than my justice. And so part of the way that that happens is through the intercession of the Prophet yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Actually, I think that like modern Muslims, we don't really emphasize this very much. But when you read in the tradition, this is a huge issue for people. Like the ulama, the people of spirituality, all this kind of stuff. This issue of the intercession of the Prophet that's what they're banking on. Like the most righteous people in history, they're not like, I did this and I did this and I'm so great and all these things. They're just like, I just love the Prophet and I'm hoping that he's going to help me. Like it's pure, uh, it's pure like love. You know, and, and that's an important issue, right? It's like parents, you can see it sometimes. Like the appeal to love is different than the appeal to justice. And when they're like, the kids are like, well, but it's not fair you do this. We're like, wait a second, you really want to open the fair door? <laughs> like, I'm already having, we already aired on the side of mercy right now. If you want to do like the whole tit for tat, like I did this and I did this and let's judge the whole thing, let's not go down that route. We've already forgiven it. Like, just let it go. So the mercy is a beautiful thing, subhanAllah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us, inshallah. All right, next week, inshallah, uh, I'll give you an option. I'll give you an option. Because this came up earlier today, Sheikh Fuad had this idea. And we are saying, like, it might be nice if, although it was for Sunday morning, but is, like, when we finish a text, maybe the week after, instead of starting something new, we just do open conversation. People can come bring whatever question they have on any issue, any topic, and we can just discuss it. And then the next week we can start the new text, whatever it is. Or we can just go into whatever the new text is. So what do you prefer? If you prefer that we take a week that's kind of open discussion, raise your hand. Okay. If you prefer that we go straight into another text, raise your hand. I mean, this is really even. I guess we'll decide <laughs> before next Sunday. And when you come, we'll let you know. We have some teachers, they don't actually, they have like a weekly, they used to have a weekly gathering. There's nothing that they teach, like text-wise. Every, every week they would come, people ask whatever they want. Sometimes you're in like theology, sometimes you're in fifth, sometimes you're in history, sometimes you're all over the place. It's really beautiful. Of course, they're very senior. So when it's senior people, you get a lot from that. When it's junior people like us, you probably get more from books and stuff. So alhamdulillah, it's good. Type.